1: back. Those of you who follow the podcast and watch these conferences know how much I enjoy having the folks that inspired me to get into the industry on the show. And today we have Don Daglow with us. Don was, let me get rid of that real quick. Don worked on many of the games that I played growing up that inspired me to, to get here. And for that, I will always be appreciative. But without further ado, Don, take it away the floor is yours.
2: Thank you so much. And it's great to be here and be part of this event. And I'm gonna be talking about structured for success, starting your new project, starting your new studio. And we'll talk about things you need to consider beyond the dream of your great game that are practical things that come along with starting a new project or starting even a new studio, a new business. So very quickly, as, uh, as was inferred so uh, politely, uh, I'm an old guy. I have wrote my first uh, computer game 51 years ago, on a, on actually 52 years ago now, on a mainframe. Uh, I've been incredibly lucky. During the 70s, I was just writing games for fun, not for money, on mainframes. When the industry started, I had the privilege of working for Intellivision, then a little startup called Electronic Arts, and for Broderbund. Uh, where I learned much of the publishing side of the business and then started my own studio, Stormfront Studios, which I ran for 20 years. And there's a list on screen of games I worked on uh, in each of those settings. And then for about the last 15 years, I've been working more behind the scenes as an advisor, as a game designer for hire, as a narrative designer, uh, as a coach, and Uh, Working in all sorts of different roles, filling gaps for teams, backing teams up, coaching teams uh, who are working on games. And uh, I've been continuing to have fun doing that. It is really that experience, though, of building a studio and what I also learned as a publisher that I'm drawing on today. I'm also now advising the Strong National Museum of Play, which is the largest games museum in the world. It's in Rochester, New York, where it was founded 50 years ago. If you've never gotten there, it's well worth going. It is so much fun. And I'm also the volunteer president of the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Foundation, and we award scholarships and coordinate mentoring opportunities for students pursuing careers in the games industry and from early career professionals uh, in the industry. So the basic premise of this talk is... If I were going to share with my best friend or even a family member, what advice would I share if they were starting up a new project or a new studio and I had less than an hour to do it? What are the things that would first come to mind that I'd really want to share with them so I could be of as much help as possible? That's what I'm trying to do in this talk is give you that best friend input for you to consider. Remember always, whenever I give you input or advice, it is for you to consider and use as you see fit. Only you know the individual situation you face. Only you know your game. Only you know your dream of how you want your audience to feel when they play your game. That is the most important thing, and that is controlled by you. I'm here to offer input on how to bring your dream to life, but you are the master of your dream. You and your team, whatever however way you're working it, That's what you're doing. So I'm here to give you input, but you are the one who is guiding the ship forward. Starting out, I I want to address something in terms of mindsets we have when we start out to build a game. Uh, Here's the Hollywood version of Mark Zuckerberg and his friends starting out to create Facebook. And one of the things we notice is, first of all, it's a Hollywood fantasy. So we went, we're going to talk about fantasy and about reality in game making um, because there's a big diversion between the reality and what people from outside the business perceive. But you'll notice all four of these individuals, they're all going to the same school. They all uh, have a, a fairly similar silhouette, something the animators would never do is have characters who all have similar silhouettes. In fact, they dress in similar ways. They even have similar hair color. So if you're thinking of building a team, one of the things I want you to do is banish that stereotype from your head. Maybe there are other kinds of stereotypes we could look at. For example, what if a team looked like this? All women and diverse women. Um, Thinking about a team outside of the stereotypes we sometimes see is important. And by the way, if these four, knowing them, Uh, If these four ever decided to do something together, I would run screaming into the room and saying, please let me work with you because that would be one heck, one heck of a leadership team with those four. So one of the things we know about storytelling about movies uh, and now increasingly about games is you have to get off to an exciting start. So in Star Wars, within the very first few minutes of the film, we see Princess Leia, her tiny ship pursued by the massive battle cruiser. We understand the good guys, the bad guys. We understand their relative strengths. And we know this immediately. And we have this sense of something terrible is going on. Something needs to be done. With Indiana Jones, right from the very start, we, we understand who Indy is, the risks he's taking. And we also see a gigantic boulder start rolling down to squish him. So we're pulled into the story immediately. We know who he is. We understand the the risks involved. The same thing applies not to only drawing people into our games quickly, because increasingly we have to catch people's interest and hold it very quickly. We don't have a lot of time to get people interested in our games. But also this whole idea of the very start of a game project is a very important time both in terms of its content and also in terms of its production if you're starting a new business that makes a very very critical time as well so if we picture you as an individual or maybe as a small team strolling along the beach dreaming of what you want to do and You're talking about the game and how you foresee it coming and so on, and your dreams go on. And this is a process that can go on for a while when we're thinking about what we want our game to be. And what I would like to do when I advance this slide is to say, wait a second, there's something else I want you to be thinking about as well. We talked about fantasy and reality Uh, If you've been in the games industry a long time, you've probably had some uh, introductions to the difference. If you're new, that's an important thing for you to learn because like any creative craft, the artistry is real. The joy is real. The way we can reach out and touch our audience is absolutely real. But so is the business side, which can be tough. And I want you to understand both that the positives of the game industry and being game makers are absolutely real i still love doing this after 52 years i get up in the morning excited about the project or projects i'm working on uh, and that frankly that excitement doesn't feel any different to me than it did when i was a college sophomore discovering the computer but i also want to share in addition to that the the other realities of the business and i really want to get you focused on thinking about how we manage risk as we produce our dreams as we pursue our great ideas one of the quotes that i've been associated with and i'm actually proud of it from uh, from my indie games book is chase your dreams till they get tired of running away and the principle is don't give up you know there are discouraging things that happen we talk ourselves out of pursuing our dreams. We talk ourselves out of trying things. We talk ourselves out of even pitching our ideas or talking to people about it because nobody would like our idea. Well, somebody may love your idea, so we want to keep finding ways to move forward on the game. In that context, a corollary quote is that dreams only come true when we manage the risks that threaten them. Once in a while, you can just win the lottery, and it's pure luck. But most often, we want to manage risk. And for many people, risk, it's like a dirty word. Why is it so negative? That's such a risk. Well, we are taking risks, and one of the risks is we never finish our game. That's a risk I want to avoid. I want to finish a game. I want players to play our game. So risk is not a dirty word. Managing it is a way. To control it and that keeps it from being a dirty word ignoring risk opens the possibility that it damages or ruins your project so we want to manage and control that risk so where do we start we're back on the beach wandering and dreaming where do we start here are some things to ways to look at and things to think about so we're thinking about where are we going and here we are in this nice here we've got a pier. We've got a nice clear path forward to the boat to sail where we want to go. But, of course, we don't want the boat to go anyplace like this. This is not a good – Gilligan's Island was a lovely fantasy. I don't like this reality, so let's not go there. So three topics to start out with here, solo or team, career or side gig. These are things that really set the, the stage for your planning or making those choices. I'm going to share one success formula and the three kinds of cash, which is something one of my mentors taught me when I founded my studio and poison and antidote. And I'll see if I can make sense out of those topics for you. So first of all, This is the most important financial formula for game studio leaders to know. And as you run a business, there's a lot of spreadsheets you look at. You look at a lot of budgets. You look at a lot of how cash is coming in and being spent. You look at project budgets, uh, planning people, assets. But there's one overarching business uh, formula that I think is very important to know. And that formula is the getting the money does not guarantee necessarily the happiness. It can equate, but often it does not. And so often teams will set out pitching, putting an idea together, looking for funding from investors, from a publisher, and they'll just say, if we can just get the money, everything will be okay. And and the fact is, if we just get the money, chapter one has now been okay, but there are many more chapters to go the chapter of being able to enable a certain scale of project money gives the the opportunity to have a scale proportionate to that money but that's all it gives you it doesn't make every anything else automatic when we get the money is when the planning really has to matter and we want to do that great planning if we can even before we get money if that's part of our plan and as you hear me say it doesn't necessarily have to be part of your plan Uh, on many games There's different ways to do it. So, our two questions: solo or team, career or side gig. Solo, if especially if you have an engineering background, there's some projects you can do mostly by yourself. You can bring in artists on contract, you can work with audio people, you may have buddies you want to bring in, and you can work on a very, very slim uh, way as a project. Uh, Other projects really require a team. If you're going to do the next Harry Potter game, you're going to need a big team. So for your project, how small or big do you need to be? Could you be as small as Solo? What's your minimum size? And I hit minimum for reasons we're going to talk about having to do with cash. And then the other question is career or side gig. Do you need to get paid the money? Uh, Do you need to draw a salary from this project? Or is it something that you or maybe you and some friends can work on in your spare time and get to a certain point before you proceed. That's another thing to consider. Is that possible? It may not be. It may be something you can consider as an option. When you consider those questions, they let you plan your the issue of risk. I hate putting charts like this in a presentation. Because it seems like every presentation you ever look at has one of these four-section charts with two things on the left and two things on the bottom. But a lot of those charts tell us something useful. So uh, that's why I have this here. So on our left-hand side, you can see we've got team going up to progressively larger teams, solo at the bottom. And then at the bottom is our criteria, whether it's a career or side gig. And where we land in in this chart tells us a lot about risk. So, for example, if you are solo and it's a side gig, you're doing what you can when you can do it. Um, And if you can't do it today, it'll get done tomorrow. You don't have a deadline. You're just doing it as you can. Uh, You only pay for things, services or objects or tools. You only pay for them when you can afford it the schedule of that project is going to be very difficult to to predict and it's going to take much longer but your risk is very low on the other hand if you build a big team to build your harry potter game um and you're drawing a salary from it and lots of other people are drawing a salary too suddenly a lot of money is involved and teams that haven't been uh, up and running for very long if if they're really doing good work and they've attracted investors or they've uh, attracted uh, a publisher may find themselves spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on running the team those are big stakes you can see all the things that the leaders of the team now have to start thinking about where you've got salaries bonuses benefits uh, vacation schedules taxes an office oh are we remote are we not remote who needs to come in who doesn't how often do they need to come in for how long do they need to come in how do they come in all these things we need to think about if you are the leader of a team that starts to become larger like this if you come from production it's familiar but you won't get to do all the producing things That you're used to doing because you're spending so much time running the company you'll have to have producer or producers running a lot of those functions for you if you come from a creative craft from game design from art from engineering from audio uh wherever you come in that in that uh, array of specialties you will be doing less and less as the leader of the company of the creative craft you love Because running a company, running a big team, takes time. When you're solo or a small group, not so much, but once it gets big. If you signed up for that, that's great because you planned it, you expected it, you may may still kind of hate it. I've known a number of successful uh, studio GMs and, and CEOs who still just will sit down at the end of the day for a half hour and, sketch something draw something paint something just for a little while just to use the craft they love but most of their time they spend running the studio as long as you understand that that's what the leader is signing up for it's good i want you to be aware ahead of time as you get bigger more and more you're drawn away from perhaps what it was that drew us into game development our love of a particular part of the process So how do we guide ourselves through this? The I mentioned that we're trying to chase our dreams. We're trying to manage risk, but we're trying to chase our dreams. And the thing I always go back to is build a game you're proud to ship. In my entire career, leading companies, leading teams, I've got, what, at least 30-plus years in the role of being the leader in one way or another. The places I look back and where I found I got off track was when I was so worried about everything else that I didn't put building a great game at the very top of the priority ladder. And you can't build a great game mistreating your team because teams that are being mistreated are virtually never going to produce great games. So all these things come together. But having that as your goal, how do we get build a game we're proud to ship? And not just that the leader is proud to ship or the founders are proud to ship? How do we have the whole team feel like they're proud to ship this game? We're never going to get complete unanimity. But how do we share that so that it's not something that just comes from the people who begin the company, but it comes from everybody and it's built into the culture of your team and your company. Build a game we're proud to ship. There are plenty of practical forces that try and get in the way of that. But it's a great beacon to come back to. So let's talk about cash, the uh, the one bling to rule them all. And I'm going to share some things. I wish I could tell you I was smart enough to come up with some of this. But this was all taught me by mentors when I first founded, founded my own studio. And uh, boy, did I have great teachers. And I, I remain grateful to them. So first of all, the three kinds of cash. I always thought there was one kind of cash. And then I was taken aside by a mentor and told when I founded my own business, no, Don, you have to understand there are three kinds of cash. There is cash you don't have to give back, which is, you can see in, in this uh, this photograph, The uh, it looks perfectly nice. It's normal cash. You can use it any way you use cash. You probably have some in your purse or your wallet right now, and that's a good thing. But you'd think cash you don't have to give back you know cash i've I've got it why would i have to give it back well there is cash you have to give back so one example if you decide your team is going to have an office when you rent that office you put down a deposit to the landlord on your financial statements it will still say that that's your cash but you don't have that control of your cash if for some reason you left the office before the end of the lease you would never get that cash back if you really needed cash for something to meet pay some debt or meet some deadline in the business that's cash you couldn't access because although you own it it is controlled by somebody else another great example is if you have signed a deal with a publisher There's the matter of advances against royalties. That's the way that very often these deals are financed. If your advances in your contract are listed as refundable advances, that means the publisher under certain circumstances defined in the contract, they can say, oh, you have to pay the money back. That means that all the advances you get from that publisher become cash you may have to give back and you just look at the illustration here and you can see we don't see that cash so clearly a lot of teams end up signing deals like that and when a publisher tells you refundable advances they will have very good reasons why they want to control their risks and you would have to really mess up before they would ever ask you to pay back that money Many publishers in our industry are very ethical, and sometimes there are bad situations that happen where they would ask for the money back, which would be catastrophic to a team. There are publishers in the games industry that are less less ethical and could manipulate circumstances to issue such a demand letter to a team, which puts the team in a very terrible position. The way to avoid this is if you're negotiating a contract is always say no uh, advances have to be non-refundable refundable Refundable advances. Don't let us run a business. Any business person you say that to will know you're telling the truth. So the advances have to be non-refundable. If that kills the deal, it's probably a deal you didn't want to be part of. So obviously this is only my opinion you should also be consult if you have a valuable contract you need to be consulting attorneys as well they will have their opinions and I'm not an attorney but as a business person my opinion is never sign a deal for refundable advances so i always like to warn teams about that and then the third kind of cash where there's no picture at all because it's cash you have not yet received when we're building games and we have investors or a publisher who are paying us money in tranches every once a month we get a check once every six weeks or three weeks whatever it is we get a check we can become very used to that money get used to receiving that money and so we start to count on it but then there's a milestone that that's a little late then there's a milestone there's a problem with then your producer leaves the company and suddenly you get another producer and the new producer is nothing like your old producer. I have some stories like that that were very dramatic Um, where we had somebody we trusted deeply who was really operated at a high level and then suddenly we get somebody who's out to get that big promotion and this is how they're gonna do it. All those things can threaten that money. So when you're counting how much cash you have in your business, In your project, remember, cash you have not yet received isn't really cash at all. You have a probability of receiving it. It may be a very high probability, but it's still not yet cash until you have it in your bank account and the check has cleared. Or the wire transfer has been completed. When they can't take it back, if they can still take it back, it's category two. It's only category one when you have it in there and you don't have to give it back. Managing cash that way is one of the secrets of being able to sustain a business because there will always be surprises, issues, things that happen. Payments do get delayed. I've had payments delayed just by literally a bank error. I've had payments delayed. Uh, There was, you know, somebody clicked on the wrong key on on their keyboard in the finance department and you get paid $600,000 three days late being aware of the possibility of these things is always important so moving on oh wait i should have mentioned there's a fourth kind of cash he said theatrically and that fourth kind of cash is the worst kind of all it's cash that someone else knows you need and they want something in return and i chose tony soprano for my uh, illustration which is kind of cynical But there are two ways to look at this. If a studio runs out of cash or runs low on cash, if you look for another investor, the risk for that investor is higher because you're having problems. If you're healthy and everything's going great, investing in you is a lower risk. If you have some problems, it's a higher risk. That's going to change the terms. That is completely reasonable for somebody to do. And if you run low on cash, that's something people encounter. If a publisher is working with you in good faith, their risk has gone up and they may ask for concessions before they put more money into a project. They could conceivably refuse to put more money in. Let's not go there if we possibly can. That's where we don't want to go. And I'll be talking later about how to avoid going to those places. Then finally, if you are doing business with somebody who uh, is uh, edgier on their ethics, shall we say? You could find that you're being asked for unreasonable concessions in return for cash. Uh, In if you were dealing with investors, there are a lot of different ways to structure investment deals in games and having an attorney guide you and an attorney with experience in the games industry guide you on these things is very important. So this is where you really don't want to go with cash. This comes back to cash is king. That's the first thing my mentor told me when they sat me down. They said, "Remote, above above all else, cash is king. And we've talked about the different kinds of cash and how cash you have and don't have to give back is by far the best kind. Um, But why is cash king? Well, cash is like a ticket to Disneyland. Once you use it up, you have to go home. A business can survive many many different kinds of problems if a project is late usually there's a way to work around it oh there there's a flood and the building is damaged and you can't get into the building where your studio is you, you know all these things usually there's a way to work around as long as you have cash if you don't have cash you can't pay people's salaries you can't pay for the benefits you can't pay the rent if you have a studio if you're not fully remote an opportunity that came up during the pandemic so clearly. If you can't do those things, then once people aren't paid, they have to go get a job somewhere else. The team disperses. If the landlord doesn't get paid for long enough, they lock the door and you lose access to your facilities and to your computers, your work environment, and everything else. So you can overcome many kinds of problems in business, but running out of cash for a business is something you don't come back from. And people say, oh, well, I get something in 10 days. I can put it back together. No, by 10 days, all your best people are working somewhere else. So that's why cash is king is because it's the one thing of all the things you have. It's the one where if you run out, uh, you don't get another chance to, to pull it all back together. Now, when we're talking about the, there, there's the temptation to use credit, people do things like mortgage their houses. Do not do this because if there's that much risk that other people won't invest, why would you, uh, risk if you're lucky enough to own a home? Why would you endanger that, that security for you and for your family? So many of us are building games, have families, have kids, may have parents we're helping to support. You don't want to endanger those things. If nobody, if, if there's a problem getting money into the business, that's a symptom of something you need to address. It doesn't mean that you suddenly need to start putting up the money, unless you have money that is fun money that you can afford to lose. It's like Vegas, you only bet the amount of money you can afford to lose and have it not impact things. So so a couple of things to know about this. Under the law, if if you look at the fine print when you get a credit card, if you get a credit card for your new business, somewhere in the very fine print, Let's see. Let's get out the magnifying glass here. The Somewhere in the fine print, it will say, oh, by the way, if the business doesn't pay us the payment for this credit card, we can come take it from you. So you are guaranteeing that credit card. And a lot of people never read the small print and don't realize that they are personally guaranteeing it. And then maybe they run up 20, 40, $50,000 on that card. And suddenly then something goes wrong and they realize, oops, I've got a very big debt here and it's my personal debt and it's legal by the way i talk a lot about the law because inevitably if you run a studio you'd have to know about these things and you work with good attorneys i will say it looks like i've got a bunch of law books behind me people kid me about it uh that those actually aren't law books when i was a kid i was a stamp collector and i still have my albums in the background so no i'm a game designer not a lawyer but um this is important so never Uh, be in a position where you'd use a, a business credit card, not realizing you're spending your own money. If you're the signatory on that card and you're the leader of the organization and never guarantee a business loan, guaranteeing it means that if, if you take a loan of any sort, if you can't pay it back, whoever the loan is from a bank an investor, anyone, it means they can come and take the money from you. And again, they have legal power to do so this is why you want attorneys involved when you do this paperwork is to protect your side of this because the other side knows it very well. You never want to do that. So no business loan guarantees leases. If you choose to have an office, uh, the landlord might say, we want you to personally guarantee the terms of this lease. Well, that could turn out to be a great deal of money, a two year lease at a hundred thousand dollars a month. That's a $2.4 million obligation. And if something goes wrong halfway through the project, 1.2 million of debt is sitting there. So you never want to do any of these guarantees. Tell the landlord, no. Uh, Anytime there's a personal guarantee, always say no, unless you are in the fortunate position where you can afford to do that. And it isn't going to damage you and your family. These are all things that tempt us when we have problems with cash. That's why I mention it about how to be careful with cash. And here's how we make sure it doesn't cascade in and damage your life. I have many stories about this I can share. I'll share one very quickly. And then I'm gonna move on from this topic. I don't want to just be uh, focused just on the money side. I have a a good friend who I had worked with and who founded a successful game studio. Uh, Ended up a few years later, they sold it to a publisher and uh, a few months later i uh, got the chance to have lunch with my friend and said you know congratulations i'm so happy for you for doing this and stuff It you know uh it's it's great you got to you know you got the win and they said thank you i appreciate that i'm you know it, it's cool in many ways uh but i'll tell you i lost my marriage uh, for this company and as happy as I am with this result. And that's cool. If I could do it all over again, I'd lose the company and keep the marriage instead of keeping the company and losing the marriage. That's a story that's worth remembering as we go into all of the business side. All right. Hopefully I have not discouraged you because I still want you to be on that beach, thinking about your game, trying to give you information on the risks. But why do we keep dreaming? First of all, because it's our dream. It's what it may be what you feel like, what you were made to do. After 52 years, I look back and I know it just feels like being a game developer is what I was meant to do. That just, that was the career that was waiting for me that never even existed when I was born. Um, We want to chase those dreams, we don't want to let things like I'm talking about with money. And laws and legal and contracts and stuff stop us from doing that. That's not my goal here. So let's go back to the beach. If you are building a team, if you're not just doing a solo operation, we come to the question of who else, who else is going to come to the desert island with us to start this project. I use a desert island as a metaphor for a very real reason. When it's a a small group of people starting out on the game, Your world is that group of people. And in some ways, you are all locked up together on the desert island of your dream, of your vision, and figuring out how do we live here? It's like an episode of Survivor, but everybody's collaborating, not trying to be just the one survivor. It's a collaborative game, but it can feel like a desert island, and you can feel cut off from the rest of the world where just your project and what you have to do to make your project fly. Dominate all your thinking, and you can feel isolated. That so, thinking about it as who do I want to have with me on a desert island is a really good way to look at it. Some of the questions that come up then that we'll talk about who gets a ticket to the desert island? Who needs to come right at the start? You don't want to start out with 32 people, you have nothing for most of them to do at the start. You want to start out with a very small crew, the smallest possible crew, to figure out where to begin what terms are written on that ticket if you're going to come to the island what is expected of you and we want to have clear expectations we want to agree before everybody sails to the desert island before everybody says yes we're doing this we're going to we're forming this team you want to agree on issues like this and some other things i'll bring up and you want to write it all down now if if you saw the the film the social network about the foundation of Facebook, you see one reason. If you have a massive success, everybody's going to argue about money. That's a good reason to to write it down. But also, it is so easy. If you and three friends are starting a company, you have a shared vision. You four all trust each other. You have great relationships. It is so tempting to say, look, we've built six games together already. We know how we do stuff. By the way, that's a tremendous advantage for your team. But, Even in good faith, misunderstandings happen. If you've been in a long-term relationship with a partner, you know that even with that partner to whom you are totally committed, once in a while fights happen because there's misunderstandings. Uh, The same happens with work partners, even ones you understand and believe in and trust so deeply. Taking the time to write down the assumptions, the assignments, the expectations, who's going to do what, who owns what, Doing that at the start takes so much drama out of life later. So it's very important to do. And so when we come on just to the start of who's going to be on the team, I I think I don't need to talk a lot about being very selective and only bringing in the people you really need and only bringing in people you really believe in. If this is what your recruiting strategy looks like, it's probably not good. And I joke about it. But whoever you're going to have with you on a desert island, you want to really know that they're going to be somebody who will collaborate for the whole group to succeed. So here's a a laundry list of things to, to decide before you start the business. And even if you're just building a project without a business, some of these are things that are good to decide who is the CEO, the managing director, who is the person who makes the final calls. And I've heard teams say, Hey, the three of us are equal partners. We didn't need that. We can work it all out. Most often you can, uh, I have had one client that was started by three equal partners, very successful company, uh, ended up having a very successful sale to a larger entity, uh, that did great for the three partners. Three partners said, no, we're equal. We run it together. But one of the three partners was the CEO. And they may have argued like crazy in the background, but one of the three was the CEO. And all three of them told me in private and in public how they ran it really as a team, but they still had that CEO. And that's a lesson because they had a way, if they were ever stuck, they had that way out that they did have one person who made the final call. So why is this important? Who approves and signs the checks? Oh, yeah, that's where we manage the cash cash is king that's the person who is most in charge of of keeping the right kind of cash in the company who sets salaries and contract payments i had a client once where without intending to uh one of the one of the senior people in the company not the ceo made a commitment of close to four hundred thousand dollars to an outside contractor uh uh, for asset production and they talked about it and wrote notes about it in such a way they thought well until there's a contract it doesn't matter they had so many notes and so many conversations that the outside contractor company said no we have an oral agreement with you guys you guys owe us whether or not you want us to do the work you might as well have us do the work because you owe us almost four hundred thousand dollars they talked to their attorney and the attorney said, ooh, they're right. You have a nasty lawsuit here, and you're going to pay a lot of money one way or another. And it was not intended, but somebody other than the CEO just spent a lot of their money on, uh, and it turns out a lot of those assets were never used because they had not finalized what assets they wanted. So that's a, uh, that's a lesson to learn from. Uh, who hires and fires teams and contractors? who must approve work for it to be done we're going to talk about uh, project management a lot in the last part of this talk and one of the key points of project management is what are the specifications when is an asset done when is a milestone done when is a game feature done when is a game mechanic done these are all things we have to define very carefully and then what project tracking system will you use And that's vital because whatever system you use, if you do not manage your schedules and do project management, uh, the team is almost certain to get in trouble. And so that's why that's vital. And uh, I'll spend most of the rest of this talk talking about it. One note about deadlines. Why do we have schedules? Why do we have deadlines? It helps us focus. Uh, These are two books I've written uh indie games from dream dream to delivery a lot of the ideas i talk about in this talk are from there uh is obviously a games guidebook for indie games the fog seller is a novel that was a passion project i wrote uh i actually had a relatively light load of advisory work for uh, about six months and so i wrote the indie games book by focusing on it with much of my time because i didn't have a lot of advisory work during that time and i wrote the book in seven months uh the uh the fog seller being a passion project i worked on almost always late at night uh you know take the last hour of the day when i'm actually conscious and work on the book and when i could and during times when i was really busy at work i didn't do anything maybe for months And then I might get a time where I'm on a break and I have a chance to spend more time on it. But with a deadline, seven months, with no deadline, seven years, that's why we have to understand the difference between side gig or side passion project and something where you have to, you have to get paid for it uh, because that's where your salary comes from. That's what you have to do to make rent or pay the mortgage. So deadlines are critical to focus our energy. To underscore this and to underscore the need for having a project management system, and I will tell you, you'll hear from me, I'm a fan of Agile. It could be Agile, it could Kanban. It could be whatever system that actually works. But just trying to keep track on a spreadsheet usually does not work. So I want to push you very hard towards adopting one of these systems that works for you. If you're a games industry veteran, I bet you can look at the slide I've got up here You've probably already read it, and you will probably know, oh, boy, I was on a project where we could fill in that slide, and here's my horror story. Well, I'm going to share some from you. These are fictional, but they're combined from all sorts of different things that really happened. Uh, Just to illustrate this point of how often this happens. Okay, here's our first one. Uh, We used it five months of our 12 months, and then we realized we'd never be able to make pathfinding work the way we had this game set up. Whatever set of constraints was enough to keep pathfinding from working. So they cut the wilderness. They're saying the game in the city, but all the work they've been doing was on the wilderness, and that's what they have to cut because that's where the <coughs> excuse me, that's where the pathfinding is hard, and the city it's easy. So, you know, this was a side project. Everybody had day jobs. The team gave up. You can't wait five months into a project to know that your biggest technical challenge is going to stop you from doing the project as planned. This is something we have to figure out right at the start. And we have to set ourselves a deadline for doing the steps necessary to figure out whether it will work or not. And having artists
0: Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket.
2: Create the assets for the wilderness until we know we can have a wilderness is a complete waste of time and money. So we have to plan, how do we eliminate these possibilities Part of risk management is you just say, what could go wrong? Okay, let's eliminate that risk. Let's reduce the chance of that happening. And how do we do that? We prove that we can do pathfinding the way we think we can do it right from the start. And I will tell you from my days as as a programmer that some of the dreams I had of things I could code and came true and worked out great and others did not. So that just part of comes with the territory. Okay, our next example, we use six of our nine-month schedule. and uh, Our game was hard, too hard for most mobile players. Our, our balance was all wrong. But, of course, the hard levels were everything we were working on. We weren't working on the easy introductory levels. We were working on the hard levels and the medium levels. So we only have uh, three months left, running out of cash, have to lay off uh, to get more cash from the publisher, we had to make concessions. Maybe they had to lay off half the team, crunched four months. We didn't get a great game. We got an okay game. That is not, that sucks. That's not what we want to do. We can't wait six months into a project to start looking at our audience's difficulty level. Not how well we can play the game, but how well our audience can play the game. We can't wait six months. That's something we have to look at right at the start of the project. We have to have deadlines and absolute steps right at the start to address it. Another horror story. Oh, we used 10 of our 18 months, and we realized that's twice a big, as big a game as we could build. Well, you know, this could go a lot of different places. In this In this fantasy story, the publisher kills the project. And this particular family has to move to a whole new city and take their kids out of school and relocate their kids because this thing fell apart. At that point, that's not just the dream of game development. That's the reality of our jobs and having careers in games. I don't want to have people have to go through that. I don't think you do either. We can't go 10 months into a project to know that we're wildly off on scope. One of the advantage of agile and Kanban-type systems is you are not surrendering to scope at the beginning of the project. You have an idea of your scope, and then you're doing the steps necessary to fully define the scope right at the beginning of the project. We cannot get 10 months in. This seems absurd. If you've never been part of game projects, this could seem absurd. When you combine brilliant, creative people who have wonderful ideas and you combine that passion and that drive and that ability to make something out of nothing and make it work it's easy to fool ourselves into ignoring these realities till deep in a project in a way where you look back and you're just kicking yourself but we put blinders on ourselves good project management is a counteraction for those blinders and the problems it creates so i could sum some it all up as saying don't go here don't put yourself on a narrow path That just leads to a drop-off in the middle of a jungle. And project management is our tool to avoid that happening. So you can find a proven tracking process. You'll keep hearing me talk about Agile. But listing tasks in a spreadsheet, any system, is useless unless team leaders do something when you're late. And inevitably, stuff is late. You can't have any group of people or even an individual working on things. Not every time prediction for everything will be right. Sometimes we, as, we tend to be too optimistic. We usually think something will t- take less time than it really takes. We can have things like, oh, two people caught COVID and they're effectively out of circulation for 10 days between isolation and being sick. These things happen the point is when something makes any part of the game late you as a leader the leaders of the team want to immediately say okay what do we do to fix that otherwise otherwise late builds on. late a helps create b which makes c later and then d and very quickly you start to get where you have the whole project starting to drag and development's slower, and you get farther and farther behind, and then the project comes into danger. If you, from the very beginning, if something is behind, if you say, okay, how do we make that up, do we simply postpone doing that? Kick the can down the road. Do we put more people on it? Do we uh, change what we're doing next week so we do this and we postpone something else? Whatever the solution is, we want to think about it early every time something is late. That way we don't build up this mass of late stuff that can fatally wound a project or fatally wound its quality. So uh, among those things, the biggest thing is cut scope immediately when it's clear a game's too large. Using agile types of systems uh, give you wonderful tools to deal with this in a in a really uh, uh, organic way that let you manage it on an ongoing basis. And the other point to remember is we can't go too schedule crazy because meeting milestones, which we may have to do to get paid by an investor or a publisher, is is critical to getting cash. And oh by the way, cash is king. But in the long run, meeting milestones is is has no meaning if the game's not fun to play. So we have to be focusing on that fun early. There is a balancing act between between the things we have to do to get paid and making sure we are building a fun game. And that balancing act is one of the pieces of what leaders have to learn to be able to do. You can't ignore either. If you're building a lousy game or a boring or a Me Too game, that's not going to go anywhere good. And if you run out of cash, you can't build your great game. So we have to balance those two factors. So this is why I come back to build a game you're proud to ship. I've shared probably a lot of discouraging messages in this talk. Um, You know, worry about money here. Watch out for this. Make sure you do that. And why is it all worthwhile? Why do I still love to do this 52 years after discovering the computer? And the answer is, part of it is it's an art form, and you may feel like this is your craft. This is what you were meant to do. And if this is what you were meant to do, why not find ways to go do it it may not be this project even but find ways to go do it being yourself chasing your authentic dream in a reasonable and productive way why would anybody ever want to talk you out of that how do you do it it's going to be different for every person and every dream but we want to keep chasing those dreams and the dream of shipping a great game is an empowering dream That is worth chasing. And it isn't just about ourselves. It isn't just a, oh, this is how I want to spend my life. We have a unique opportunity in games because of what we do, that we reach our audience and our games, when we are at our best, are an art form. And when we reach our audience and they play, something about the play experience. Can mean so much for them that they are forever changed by it maybe forever encouraged or empowered or they have a perspective by playing your game it could be i had if you do this for a long time people come up to you and tell you about why your game was important to them um i was in germany once when a game that mostly sold in the united states uh a game dev came up to me and said oh i loved your game that uh, i didn't know this had much distribution in germany I had one very bad summer. My parents were getting divorced. Everything was falling apart in my life. I was like 15. I played that game all summer, and it was just where I went to. And that game got me through. That got me through that terrible summer when everything else in my life just sucked. But I could play the game, and I loved it, and I could play it with friends, and we had so much fun, and then I could leave the world behind. That's one kind of gift we can give our players there's so many stories in multiplayer and online games of people becoming part of online communities that allowed them to escape terrible situations and so they formed new groups of friends new connections that gave them the strength to break away from a terrible place where they were Um, there are all these different ways that we, we can make a difference It's like the I woke up this morning and I couldn't get the lyrics from a wonderful song out of my head. And it's a song that means a lot to me. And it just was, you know, something in me was talking to me about those song lyrics. We do the same thing. People wake up and they think about your game and a certain moment in your game and choices they made and why they made those choices. And why they care about those choices and they still care. It's only a game. And yet we still care. We have the power to do that as game creators individually in teams in whatever structure we have the power to do that and make people's lives more fulfilling, to make people's lives better and to create a bond, even with people we never meet where just like I have a bond with the songwriter of the song that was stuck in my head this morning. They have a bond with us from playing the game, and they care about the game. If we get to meet them, it is the most wonderful feeling in the world to have the personal connection to go with it. But even if we never meet them, they are there. So why do we overcome all this crap and the risk and everything else to do it? It isn't just because it's our dream. It's because we have a way to make an impact on people and to leave, leave that impact on them in a way that spreads something good in the world, one way or another. If you have that opportunity, why would you ever allow yourself to be discouraged, to be stopped? Because the process can be hard. I'm here to try and help you with that process, to warn you about it. But the last thing I want to ever do is to discourage you from chasing your dream or to discourage you from making that impact on our audiences that you can make. That's why I want you to focus on making a game that you'll be proud to, sh- and that uh, I want you to hear, yes, you can. You just need to start it. I don't want you to hear, no, you can't, or no, you shouldn't. I want you to hear it. Yes, you can start out the first, the thinking about it and then see where it goes from there. Uh, Quick note, I use a lot of wonderful images in this talk that come from Bradley Gordon. This is his contact info that'll be in the deck. And that wraps it up. Thank you so much for giving me your time today uh, for uh, coming to this session. And uh, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that. And my contact information is up here in the slide.
1: Don, thank you so much. And we actually have time while we're getting everything set up. So I know there were a few questions that came in from the chat in general. And then, hell, I've got a few of my own too. Uh, so first, you know, from the Discord, if your dreams are big and you begin to by seeking, if your dreams are big, do you begin by seeking a large team or do you start creating as a solo act and use that to attract more people?
2: I think it, I think it is the, you have to look at the path that has led you to this moment. If that's a path where you have a lot of big game credits, you have people who like working with you, you have the connections, and you've proven your ability to build games in the past as a group or an individual, then it's easier to start uh, working on a bigger dream If you're earlier in your career and you're more starting out, then looking for the small project, the small way. Every project you build is something you learn from. Sometimes the lessons are negative. I never want to do that again. But very often they're positive and a mix of them. The most award-winning games I've ever shipped, I can look back and I could give you a long, boring speech about all the mistakes I made on them. So I think it's a matter of saying there is no shame in saying, hey, I got to start small here. I'm early on in my career because that's where everybody, if you talk to Will Wright, if you talk to Todd Howard, if you talk to Sid Meier, they will all tell you about starting with small things and then things went somewhere else from that point. Um, So I think it just look at the reality and then say, where is my logical next step? Typically, it's to start small. You may be in a position where you can start larger, but typically it's to start small.
1: All right, next up, hi Don, I was wondering if you could share some guidance for someone who's not receiving enough support from their family and friends while embarking on a studio startup journey. I think all of us can relate to that in some way, shape or form. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, uh, this, is, this is a conversation I've had a lot. Um, first of all, I'll just say I, I, I feel it. Uh, I can empathize with that feeling. I've uh, I've been extraordinarily fortunate in that I've had family support uh, from my wife throughout. She's been through every up and down of the history of the games business with me. But in that context, I absolutely feel it because we all have times we feel alone, even when the people who are supporting us. You can feel terribly alone. I think the if I boil it down to one sentence we have to separate ourselves from the project and we have to have a very tough talk with ourselves about hey is this project right is this something that's worth doing is it the right project for me to doing now is this something bigger than i should be doing now is there a different way to do it um i have had times i've had to walk away from a game i really loved knowing it wasn't time to build that game and focusing on a different project instead if there is no source for the money you need to do a certain game a certain way at some point there's no way around that because that's the cash part and we have very tough talks with each other with ourselves the second point and if you're not getting support around you emotionally or in any other way having that conversation with yourself is so hard it is so so hard and i do not want to minimize the difficulty and the pain of that conversation. And yet we have to have it. The other side is you and your game are not the same thing. I have put myself so passionately into a game that I lost the line between me and the game and my whole reason for being started to become to finish the game. And then I had to realize, no, even if this game fails, I'm still me. I'm smarter for it. I'm a better game maker for it. Maybe I have to take another path right now. I have to have to go about game development in a different way right now. I can come back to this game later if it's the right game to come back to. But the game does not define me and I cannot sacrifice myself to the game. Sometimes what people who love us are trying to say is they're afraid that we will sacrifice ourselves to something that won't love us back. And they do love us. We have to stop long enough to say is that the message we're getting every case is individual every case is unique i hope that is some perspective but uh as a game maker i'll just say don't give up on being a game maker consider alternate paths at moments when you need to but uh if that's what you feel you must be uh, there'll be a way to do it even if if you go through a t- very tough time right now there'll be a way to do it later
1: yeah, that, I, I've been there and done that on my side too. And like I like you, I have a lovely support from my wife, but that initial, I mean, I remember coming straight out of college and getting my first job and my parents looking at me going, this is not a real thing. Yeah. You can't do this for a living. And I'm like, well, turns out I can. Yeah. Uh, all right, wait, oh, I had the wrong one there. So from the Discord, since most of us are incredibly excited about the prospect of bringing our creative ideas to life, do you think it is better to consult with a financial advisor before taking initial steps in the development process?
2: I think I'm going to answer that question two ways. Number one, everyone asking these questions, you're masters of your own fate and you should do what you in the end believe is right. I think it's actually really powerful to work for other studios, other publishers to work as part of teams professionally for a while before you found your own first studio. Because so many of the lessons you need to learn, you learn as part of a team where there are experienced people around you to teach you. And it gives you so much more of a foundation. As it is, I'd worked in publishing for eight years Before I founded my own studio and I, oh, I thought I knew it all. And it's kind of like, oh, you kid, you had so much to learn. Uh, So working in part of other teams, especially teams building great games, by the way, it also makes it easier to get support later. But just the learning of it um, in the earliest days of Electronic Arts, when Electronic Arts was a company that was celebrating the individual developers who created the games, we used to say that we were learning in dog years. Uh, we were the th- there were three of us uh, working front line on as producers in Electronic Arts at that point. The company had like fifty people, and we used to say we're learning in dog years how to publish games here because it's just uh, so intense. But we were working for somebody else, and we were surrounded by other brilliant, big hearted, giving, teaching people who also had the humility to say i'm messing up i'm making mistakes i was wrong that environment teaches that kind of environment teaches so much that's number one when you feel you have some experience and are ready to do that and some people will do it right out of school i think talking with a financial advisor is good certainly if you found a company you want to have an attorney help you do that just working just setting up a company itself by yourself technically you could do it but i would if you can't afford an attorney's help you're not ready to set up a company in my view uh then that step is premature um but i think having if you've got somebody who knows if you've got a buddy who's a business person has founded any kind of business um i had uh one of my best friends for my whole life uh started out as a contractor later Uh, metamorphosed into uh, selling an app that he had programmed himself. Uh, And he taught himself to go from being contractor to programmer. And we would talk about running a company on all the issues of running a company uh, all the time. And he wasn't even anywhere near games yet. So many of the issues we talked about, we both faced with our young Mm -hmm. companies. So I think getting some kind of perspective and
1: advice like that is very good. So, and, and, yeah, I can actually relate to this one as well. SimCity was a huge part of my life as a kid. What inspired you to participate with the studios that you've collaborated with over the years?
2: You know, uh, City. <laughs> there's a longer story in SimCity, but suffice it to say, the great story about that, and then I'll answer your question about inspiration. But I want to share this. Will Wright pitched SimCity to every publisher in the industry, and everybody turned him down. It was only when he met Jeff Braun that Jeff Braun said that he would that he would publish it and they would found the company. That's when they came back to, to Bruderbund, and I had the chance to be part of, of pulling it in and, and us doing the distribution for it. There's a much longer story under there. But it's important to remember Will Wright, whose gifts are now well-recognized, and who, by the way, is a wonderful guy in so many ways. Um, will was told no by everybody this tells us something that our very often our great ideas are not going to be recognized the a different producer at ea evaluated the game um and passed on it for reasons that are very understandable um i loved it in part because i'd written utopia for Intellivision, and you know those games have a thematic uh, tie So I was predisposed to like it. As far as why I've worked with each of those, um, you know, it's it's interesting. At the end of the day, it is that combination of having great people who you want to go to a desert island with for all the reasons I described. They'll teach you. They want to learn. We're all in it together. They operate as a team. They give a damn about great games. They want to build a great game. But they also give a damn about the people around them. So that team pool is it. And ironically, because games, you finish a game and you move on to the next game, in many ways, finding the right team to be part of or assembling the right team to be part of, in the long run, is even more important than any one game. Because even a franchise that goes on, you're going to want to do other things instead of just become a prisoner of that franchise, doing just one title for the rest of your life, even with something you adore. I'll tell you after 10 or 12 years that can
1: get old and you need a break <laughs> yes so all right, and this that story about will ties into a conversation that was going on in the comments in the meantime we are seeing a lot of uh remasters and things like that in the mm-hmm. industry now and, and so those of us who have been doing this for a long time recognize part of that is because the big AAA publishers are very, very risk averse and they can look yeah. at a remaster and say, OK, there's a finite amount we've got to put into this and we can accurately estimate it's going to yield you know this much. You know, back in the day, Will could have turned into one of those you know companies and one of those designers who just said, OK, I'm going to self-publish. So, But that wasn't really an option until, like, whatever, 2004, whenever Steam launched it and iTunes came out. But at what point, we still see a lot of that in terms mm-hmm. of developers have a great idea for a game and they pitch it and publishers are like, eh. But I'll tell you the one that I see more often than anything else is uh, vehicular combat and i see a pitch for it and you know publishers go well there's not really anything that we can you know pull comparables on and i'm sitting there going well that's because none of you will publish one of them when <laughs> the whole world knows that you know people love twisted metal yeah where you know if, if you're god bless
2: david jaffe if,
1: if you're in that situation where you're pitching and you're pitching, and you're, pitching and you're pitching and you're getting no and no and no How do you draw the line between, okay, I believe in this. This is something I should go and and push in self-publishing. And then, you know, versus, okay, maybe there's just no market for this.
2: And that is the eternal question. Um, And, you know, by the way, SimCity was close to self-publishing because it started out with only Will and Jeff. Jeff had the means to get over the hump to uh, publish the game. And then once they signed the distribution deal with us, back at Broderbund, which is where Will had been uh, working with the team before, um, then that took the next step. But uh, very much Will and Jeff together essentially did self-publishing and they, that's how they started Maxis. Uh, they had one other game they, they did at the start that nobody remembers. But it doesn't matter because of SimCity. I think that the best story I can tell about that, how to do that is to understand what at the core of it, producers and entertainment are trying to do. At the very beginning of EA, one of our first investors, uh, some of our first investors were the founders of a and Records, Jerry Moss and Herb Albert. And as part of their investment in supporting us, they sent, there were no producers by that title. The job was done, but the job of producer was not in the games industry yet. So uh, Trip Hawkins and the team that founded Electronic Arts produ- created that title of producer. Uh, and Tripp's mom had been a television producer, so he had some perception on that. And so the record producers from a Records came in to train us in the early days, and I got in on the end of that training. And it seems like record producers, what I mean, games are a new medium. What are they going to teach you? I have used, what, that was early 84, end of 83, early 84, ever mm-hmm. since then now. Uh, almost 40 years, I've used the wisdom they taught us because it is universal about entertainment. And what they told us was the key points were, and I swear I'll come back and answer the question, all, all hits are flukes. As a producer, your job is to produce hits. Obviously, this is this is like Mud's challenge in The Trouble with Tribbles on Star Trek. Wait, it doesn't make any sense. My job is to produce hits, but all hits are flukes. Mm -hmm. and then the magical answer they say is so work with talented people look for a vision encourage train channel and develop that vision and you will find that the most talented people are the most likely to produce the fluke and once you have the fluke you have now assembled the talent and the vision and now you can produce more predictable hits Another path is to copycat everybody else. Oh, they drilled for oil over there. Let's drill for oil there. That copycat strategy can run a business, but it will never produce big hits because you are a copycat. And that lesson applied to games of work with talented people, look for a great vision. And then once you establish a franchise, then leverage and build upon it. That's the principle of game production. Producers and studios in publishers today where they are publicly traded companies, they have to produce more revenue every quarter, every year to make the stock market happy and have the price go up, have investors happy. They are being driven to produce hits, but because all hits are flukes, they are in the business of uh, bringing things back, of copycats, of this, of filling out genres And then when they find talent and they do have the hit, then God Almighty, they are trying to leverage it. That's the world we're in. If we are getting no, it could be because we're will right and it's not recognized, or it could be because we just don't have a good concept. And the only way to do that is to ask questions every time somebody tells us no. Go to our friends who we trust will tell us the truth, not just be polite. Ask their feedback. Go to other industry professionals, ask their feedback, because the only one who can make that final call of, do I keep going or do I not when I get no, is yourself and learning from it and adapting your idea and learning from the no. No's are to learn from. They are not to stop you. And you throw it away. I hate that. I'm not going there. They're terrible. Every no, we want
1: to ask questions and we want to learn from and you don't learn nearly as much when you get guesses all the time that's
2: it's so bizarre H- having people kick my ass and give me a really hard time is some of the greatest learning i've ever had okay. in every in every endeavor i can think of so uh, uh it hurts and it sucks that night but over the long haul it, it lets us make good decisions
1: all right we've kept you long and so i'm going to ask you one final question and then we'll let you go and you are a hundred percent you know welcome to hang out on the discord server and and chat and and talk as long as you you want we see and this has been true of of my you know 25 years of doing this and this is the reason we started doing the indie game business stuff is that so many people get into games and they're from the creative side or from the programming side or from the art side you don't get that many people that get into the industry and they're like i want to do business or marketing so Looking at a lot of startups in the terms of they're either going to be run or, you know, everybody's going to be a creative designer artist. Who is that next person that you should bring on outside of those three, you know, genres, stereotypes, whatever you want to call it? Outside of those three jobs, when you're getting that studio off the ground, who's the next person that you should bring on?
2: You know, I think the game defines that, not the business, which seems to counter a lot of things I've said, but if the goal is to build a great game in a lot of these studios, if you take a lot of the most successful studios and you look at the founding team, they were all game makers. They learned business later. If you look at the founding team of blizzard, they're game makers. Um, and then they had to learn business because of how things went. Um, That is so often the case with so many of these teams. I was just uh, uh, talking with the founder of a really major studio that's now part of a a larger publisher. And, you know, we're talking about 25 years ago, uh, you know, when what we were really doing is games and all the things we've had to learn about business in the last 25 or 30 years to continue to do it. My favorite solution is to have the game makers never hand it off to people who are not game makers. Because I think if we're trying to build great games, the minute you hand it off to somebody who's not a game maker, it gets harder. So I think for the founders to evolve and learn and have one of the founders evolve to be the one who really focuses more on the business and gives up their craft, I think that's the best answer for the quality of the games. Bringing in a business person early, if you are a team, you know, we have teams just raised 55 million because they had such a great track record from investors to go build a game. If you're doing that, you're going to want some pure business people in there helping you run the business, but it's your craft skill at the craft of game making that got you that 55 million bucks. That's at the utter extreme. In indie, we're not thinking like that. But the great game, that is the ticket to every next step is building a great game, which means sometimes building a lousy game. And I always talk about uh, game design as a professional is what happens when your first idea turns out to suck, (laughs) which it does so often. But understanding that as a game maker, a business person has no idea what to do there. A team of game makers knows what to do there, and it doesn't feel very good, but we go and we do it. That's why I don't like the idea of handing it off until you're really at scale and then never giving up control. That's my favorite answer. I, whenever I have worked for people who are not game makers, I've found that typically most often, uh, even with goodwill and good people, it's harder to build a great game when I've worked for people who are game makers, it does make it easier. The best non-game makers I've ever worked for were the ones who said, I know how to run a business. You know how to build a game. We're going to have to figure out how to do this together. Yep. But they acknowledged what they knew and didn't know. So uh, anyway, I, again, a kind of a long, complex answer. But I, I, I would not run to put it. I would not interpret my comments as saying put a business person in your team early. Now, everybody in your team must be vital to building a great game at the earliest stages.
1: Uh, long and, you know, in concise answers are exactly the reason my little title underneath it says it depends, because that's basically <laughs> the answer to every question that we get on this podcast. Don, thank you so much. This was awesome. We greatly appreciate it. And it's always nice for me to get to chat to somebody who, you know, got me into this industry and got me passionate about it years and years and years ago. Uh, all right. So we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back in about 40 minutes uh, with our final talk of the show. Uh, Until then, talk amongst yourselves, do some meetings, do some stuff on, on meet and match. and, And we'll be back soon.
2: Thank you everybody.